Hey, it's Jordan. I am delighted to be joined uh, by Judge Kevin Sharp, uh, your former judge who now does uh, a lot of legal work, uh, particularly focused on mandatory minimum sentences. And you are currently the attorney for Leonard Peltier, uh, who is a Native American who has been in prison uh, for 46 years right. <laughs> uh, for, from everything I know, a crime that there is no evidence that he ever committed. Uh, so we're going to get into all that, but I wanted to um, start with Leonard Peltier is 77 years old. Uh, he's not in great health, and he recently, a couple days ago, uh, was diagnosed with COVID-19. Right. Uh, by his own account, uh, the prison he is in, in Florida, uh, the conditions have been horrendous, uh, particularly uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. I know you don't really have a ton of updates, which is part of the story. Can you kind of talk about uh, what you know of uh, Leonard's condition as far as uh, having COVID-19 now? Yeah, so, you know, it was, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Uh, one, of the, one of the problems and one of our concerns was that because of Leonard's age and because of his health and because of the way the Omicron variant is running rampant through, um, really the country, but in particular, the, the prison system. Um, we had a real concern um, that without strictly following CDC guidelines, Leonard was in danger. And our fears were kind of realized on Friday when we heard from him and Leonard said, I really had a rough night last night, the Thursday night, um, really a, a deep, persistent cough, um, feeling really, really uh, poorly. Um, and we were able to get him tested on Friday and got a confirmation that he was positive. After that, the information has kind of trickled out as to how he's doing. Uh, they put him in a medical unit isolation, still part of his housing unit. He's not been moved into medical, which is kind of a double-edged sword. It's good news that his condition is not serious enough, at least as they see it, to warrant putting him in a in more, you um, know, in the medical unit itself, but it also means, you know, is he getting the attention that he needs? After those kind of that information that trickled out for me on Saturday and a little bit on Sunday, then it's been kind of radio silent with them, um, blamed on uh, the national lockdown because of a, an incident that happened at the one of the facilities in Texas. And so I've kind of really been shut out and I'm hopeful that he's okay. Um, part of the protocol would be if if things turn serious, um, that they'll call me. Mm -hmm. so I guess the really good news is they haven't called me, but I hope that's because everything's okay and not because uh, no one's paying attention. And uh, do I have it correct that even though he's been eligible for a while, he was not able to get uh, the COVID booster shot, that third shot? You know, they have been eligible. He got his first two shots. Um, and should have gotten a booster in November. Uh, BOP has been slow to roll out booster shots. And so it's my understanding that some staff uh, have gotten shots, but not by and large the, the population and certainly not Leonard's unit. Got it. And let me just start from backwards. I mean, there's a lot of people watching that know this story, but there's a whole lot of people that don't. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, there was what they called the reign of terror 
going on against uh, Native Americans. Uh, Wounded Knee was occupied for, I believe, 70 or so days. Uh, Leonard Peltier, uh, who is, uh, he is a uh, Lakota and Chippewa Native American from South Dakota. He was part of of AIM, the American Indian Movement. And in 1975, uh, there was a gunfight at the Pine Ridge Native American Reservation in South Dakota. And uh, two FBI agents uh, were killed. And uh, Leonard Peltier was prosecuted and convicted. There were three others that were prosecuted, but Leonard Peltier was the only one convicted. Uh, Can we go back? Uh, I know you were obviously not part of it then. You you have become his lawyer now. But can we go back? Uh, Because it has come out since you have uh, witnesses being intimidated and coerced. You have evidence that would have proven his innocence that was withheld from his defense team. In Leonard Peltier's own words, he was not able to put up a defense. And I mean, you even have one of the key prosecutors who prosecuted him came out years later saying he should be freed. And there is no evidence that Leonard Peltier shot or killed at these uh, agents. Can you kind of just, for people that don't know the story, uh, this is one of the most I mean, obvious cases of uh, prosecutorial abuse, FBI abuse. Break it down. Uh, all all the things that went on. Yeah, okay, let me let me start with this. We and this happens a lot. Everybody talks about the two uh, FBI agents that were killed in this shootout. There was also a young Indian boy named Joe Stunts who was killed, um, shot in the head by an agent. Unclear exactly who shot him uh, or why. And, and that was never investigated. So we don't know who uh, killed Joe and, and why Joe was killed. Um, nevertheless, the, the shootout occurred in June of 1975, right? It's on the heels of the 1973 takeover um, at Wounded Knee. Um, and originally four individuals were indicted for killing the agents, uh, the one indictment was dropped, um, the one against Jimmy, a young man named Jimmy Eagle. And the prosecution went forward with uh, Bob Robideau, Dino Butler, and Leonard Peltier. Now, Leonard, believing that he could not get a fair uh, hearing in the United States, went to Canada. Um, and the Canadians would not extradite him uh, initially because there was not enough evidence that he had committed any crime. So, so Butler and Rabada were tried separately. During that trial, the judge let in evidence of the reign of terror, let in evidence of um, the, um, the misconduct that was occurring in and around the reservation. <clears throat> also, the indictment had been obtained because uh, of the testimony of three young boys who were up there. They were teenagers, and they had testified that they saw Leonard and the other two going down the hill to kill the agents. Turns out that testimony had been um, coerced and wasn't true. And during the trial of Robideau and Butler on the stand, uh, one of those boys, Norman Brown, who is still alive today, and uh, I've read about his story and gotten it firsthand from Norman. Um, Norman, after swearing on a sacred pipe, realized that he could not stay with this story and that he needed to tell the truth. And the truth was he didn't see any of that, that when the shooting had started, um, 
Leonard had gathered those boys and told them to take the women and children to the to the other side of the hill to safety, which does two things. One, it tells you that there was no evidence that Leonard and his co-defendants went down the hill, but it also tells you that the shooting had started and Leonard was not part of it because Leonard is on the hill with the with the boys and here's the shooting as they do. So Leonard did not instigate any of that, and he's not down the hill um, in a position where any, he could shoot anybody, uh, much less shoot them at point-blank range. Now, the judge in the Robert O. Butler trial lets in this information, this testimony about, about the reign of terror and the misconduct. And um, Norman Brown changes uh, his, his testimony to tell the truth and tells the the court and the jury about the witness intimidation. Robido and Butler are then acquitted based on self-defense. So now the U.S. attorney has got a problem. Um, they're, they're only left with one defendant. He's in Canada and the testimony has changed. Um, so there, there is an FBI memo that discusses um, using the full resources of the United States government into getting a conviction of Leonard Peltier. And one of the things that they do is get an affidavit from a woman named Myrtle Poorbear. Myrtle Poorbear testifies in the affidavit that she's Leonard's girlfriend. She was there that day. She saw Leonard kill these two agents. Um, obviously, that's going to be enough for the Canadians uh, courts to say, okay, let's extradite him. But it turns out that Myrtle Poorbear never met Leonard Peltier. She wasn't there that day. She didn't see any of this. That as she later uh, said, she signed that affidavit, which she did not draft because she had been threatened and intimidated and they threatened to take her child away from her. She had a daughter that they had threatened to take away from her. Now, which we now know, and she knew then is no idle threat as we've right. learned from the the uh, the revelation about these Indian boarding schools. Um, Leonard, in fact, had been kidnapped. Uh, Leonard and his younger sister, who was six, Leonard was nine at the time, was literally ripped from his grandmother's arms and taken to one of these boarding schools. So, right. you know, that was no idle threat. She signed the paper that they wanted to sign. But it was revealed um, before she testified that this affidavit had been uh, was not true. She had signed two other affidavits that were inconsistent with that. And as the prosecutor later said, there was not one scintilla of truth in that affidavit. Right. Um, but it didn't prevent the U.S. attorney from filing that with the courts, which right. in and of itself is uh, an ethical violation and sanctionable conduct. But they've got Leonard back. And there's no remedy under the extradition treaties to return someone when you've obtained an extradition based on fraud, which is what it was. But then the case is also transferred from Judge McManus to Judge Benson. And Judge Benson is in Fargo, North Dakota. He does not let in any evidence about the reign of terror. He does not let Leonard's um, attorneys question um, uh, questioned Myrtle Poorbear about the intimidation that, that was in, um, forced on her, does not let his attorneys question the boys about their prior uh, perjured testimony. 
And, and it's so, also it's also my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong. That early on, one of the jurors, one of the jurors had said that they were biased or or had a predisposition against Native Americans or or Leonard's race. I believe that, it was right. That's right. It was one of the things as I'm going through studying this case myself before I ever decide to come in and take it on pro bono. Uh, on day two of trial, three women show up at the courthouse. They have nothing to do with the case, but they have a notarized document um, in their handwriting that says, we, we have something we want to tell the court. We can't live with ourselves if we don't let you know that one of your jurors works with us. And she told us that she's prejudiced against Indians. Um, I'm using the terminology that they used and the terminology that Leonard uses. Um, so the court calls each of the women in. They talk to them independently. Uh, the, the, three, uh, the three women confirm that in a conversation with one of the jurors, she admitted she's prejudiced against Indians. Uh, she said to them, I, I may be called as a juror in this case of the Indian who killed the two agents. You know, never mind, you've already decided you've got a pre-conceived pre, uh, idea of what the verdict is, what's happened. Um, but, you know, y'all know I'm prejudiced. They tell that to the court. The court says, well, wait a minute, let's talk to this juror. And you think the juror is going to say they misunderstood me or I never said that. And instead, she says, I did say it. That's true. And the court and Leonard's lawyers ask the question, well, OK, you're prejudiced, but can you still be fair? And she says, yeah, I can still be fair. And, and they leave her on. Now, today, that would never happen. They, she would be removed from the jury. The, the, uh, removed as one of the jurors. But at that time, um, she stayed. Right. You, you know, there, there was also another big problem with the case, which is from a constitutional standpoint, which is that their, the government's big piece of evidence was a shell casing. In the shell casing, they said, uh, not the best ballistics test to, to conduct. We wish we could do a firing pin test. That would be the most accurate. It would tell us exactly which weapon, but a shell casing will tell us the type of weapon. And the type of weapon is the type of weapon that Leonard Peltier had. This is it. And there was a lot of waving of the shell casing around, and that was a big part of their closing argument. The, the ballistics expert said, I wasn't able to conduct any other tests. Turned out they learned years later they had conducted a firing pin test. And the firing pin test showed that it wasn't Leonard Peltier's weapon. So they had they had they had conducted a direct ballistic test yes. to trace the actual weapon of the bullets that Correct. went into these officers, and it wasn't his gun. But they withheld that evidence, which would have ex exculpatory evidence. Exculpatory evidence, right? That's evidence that tends to show you didn't commit the offense that they say you committed. Inculpatory would be evidence that shows you did do it. Um, so under the case of the United States versus Brady, the Constitution requires them to turn over Brady evidence, what we call Brady evidence, exculpatory evidence in their possession, and they simply didn't do it. So now they've got a big problem because their theory has been he shot them. And now it's been revealed that they knew he didn't shoot them. Um, and so they changed their theory. Okay, well, our theory is no longer that he shot them. And they admit and, and do today as they have to, they don't know who killed the agents. 
their theory became one of aiding and abetting. He was there. He was shooting. We don't have any proof that he hit anything, but he was there. And so he's an aider and a better. Um, we don't have to show that it was his weapon. And so the verdict still stands. At that time, the standard of review was, well, um, would the jury probably have made a different decision had they had the exculpatory evidence? And the Court of Appeals said, we can't say that they probably would have made another decision. They possibly would have. But we can't say probably verdict stands. That's not the standard today. Standard today would be in the absence of that evidence, did he nevertheless get a fair trial? And that becomes an easy one. Absolutely not. He didn't get a fair trial. We, but also, we, also, what is aiding and abetting? What does that even mean? Because if, if their standard is he was there, he was aiding and abetting, couldn't that be said for anybody that was there at, at this yes, gunfight? Absolutely. Absolutely. But then the question is, who did he aid and abet? Because his co-defendants were acquitted based on self-defense. So there was no crime. Who did he aid and abet? Now, the assistant U.S. attorney was asked that question years later by Steve Croft in a 60 Minutes interview, and he said, I don't know, maybe himself. Well, that's impossible. You cannot aid and abet yourself. So why are we still here? You know, and the Court of Appeals asked the prosecutor during oral argument, well, wait, if aiding and abetting had been your theory that you argued at the time, and that had been the theory under which he was sentenced, wouldn't the sentence have been different, not two life sentences? And they acknowledge, yes, probably so. Um, but, but nevertheless, by upholding the original conviction, the Senate stands and Leonard Peltier, who uh, has, there's no proof that he killed these agents, sits in a prison cell for 46 years. And isn't it, isn't it, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm certainly no lawyer, isn't it legally that the prosecution has to provide the defense with evidence that could be used to exonerate somebody? Yeah, right. They do. Um, and that's why the, having the different standards make a difference. By not giving him that evidence, that exculpatory evidence, which is required under the Constitution, um, he was deprived of a fair trial, but that wasn't the standard then, right? Mm. This is, you, you, it gets kind of hard because we think of this in terms of our present day um, knowledge of how these court proceedings ought to go, not the 1970s version. Right. And the 1970s, there was a different idea about, about uh, law enforcement. There was a different idea about uh, prosecutors. There was a different idea about the court system. And, you know, one of the reasons and one of the things that led me to take on this case was my own personal background have take, uh, of having taken multiple times oaths to support and defend the Constitution. It's important to me. I did it when I joined the Navy out of high school. I did it when I passed the bar. Um, and became a, a licensed lawyer in the state of Tennessee. I did it again when I went to work for Congress in the 1990s, and I did it when I when I joined the federal judiciary. Support, I, I'm swearing to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. They took that same oath. They took that same oath, but for them, 
getting a conviction was more important than their oath. And I want to also wrong. I want to also point out that the original U.S. attorney who prosecuted Leonard Peltier, um, he has come out since then uh, asking for Leonard Peltier to be freed. This was uh, right. James James Reynolds. Right. James Reynolds uh, was the U.S. attorney. And he wrote uh, to President, uh, let me make sure, to Biden uh, mm -hmm. in July of uh, last right. year, quote, I write today from a position rare for a former prosecutor to beseech you to commute the sentence of a man who I helped put behind bars. With time and the benefit of hindsight, I have realized that the prosecution and continued incarceration of Mr. Peltier was and, and is unjust. We were not able to prove that Mr. Peltier personally committed any offense on the Pine Ridge reservation. I mean, that's, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a legal reporter, but I, I know enough. It, it's pretty rare mm -hmm. to get prosecutors to come mm -hmm. out and basically been yeah. like, yeah, we screw, you know, we don't, we didn't have it. Please free this man. Uh, right. What do you, what right. are your responses? I mean, right. You don't, you don't have to be a legal scholar, uh, you know, uh, or a, or a legal reporter. You have to be a human being and you can see the, the, the concern that comes off the page from this prosecutor. Uh, he didn't try the case, but he was there as the supervising U.S. attorney for appeals, post-trial motions, sentencing, the habeas corpus petitions that were later filed. He was there for all of that. He now knows, looking back, that what they did was wrong, that it became a convict at any cost and Earlier in another in another document, he said we cut corners. Well, you know, that's an understatement. That's the understatement. They they violated the Constitution, is what happened. And he wouldn't necessarily have known that at the time, um, because he may not know what the a the AUSA's the assistant U.S. attorneys are doing in this case, or what they had done before he came became the U.S. attorney. But he's learned it, and now that he knows it. He's beseeching the president of the United States to fix this, fix what he helped create. Let's let's end this and begin the healing of the government's relationship with the Native Americans. This I also, is a bigger, bigger story than just this one individual. Right. And I also obviously, you know, you're not a historian, but we should not we should we should make sure we point out all of this was going on under uh, the uh, under the timeline of uh, Cow and Tell Pro. Uh, right. oh, I might be mispronouncing, but Calentel Pro was, you know, the FBI, frankly, in concert with the judicial system, uh, surveilling, infiltrating, uh, disrupting, uh, spying on the civil rights movement, uh, the American Indian movement. They did it to Martin Luther King. They certainly did right. it uh, with the AIM movement. So when you see, all right, these two other defendants got off for self-defense. Uh, the third one also, uh, I don't know if it was self-defense, but uh, was not was not convicted. Correct. The FBI was hell bent on somebody's got to go down for this. And right. that that was under uh, the context of Calento Pro. So, right. And, and that program within the started by the Hoover FBI was discovered in, uh, I believe, 1973. And uh, the church committee in the Senate was investigating that. Now the FBI said, well, we have shut it down. They recognized that it was unconstitutional to engage in domestic spying and counterintelligence, which is what COINTELPRO stands for. It's counterintelligence program. 
uh, to engage in counterintelligence about, about organizations and people that they believed to be subversive to the government. What they were doing was protesting the government. Okay. You know, so uh, they were using that program to, to run counterintelligence against our own citizens. Now they say once they are discovered that they shut it down. The tactics though continued and you see those tactics happening on the on Pine Ridge Reservation at the time, even though you know supposedly it had been shut down for two years, the evidence would show you um, that that's not the case. Right. Uh, so, and they were still running counterintelligence against, you're right, Martin Luther King, Black Panthers, unions. They did it with trade unions. They believed those to be subversive to the government. They did it with uh, various uh, other political parties, not the mainstream political parties. So, you know, that that's part of this history. And that's part of the reason, additional reason why Leonard needs to be freed. He's a remnant of that time that hopefully no longer exists except to the extent that we still imprison people who were victims of it. Right. Let's move beyond. The FBI needs to cut from the from J. Edgar Hoover. It's hard to believe that we're in 2022 and we're still talking about removing ourselves from J. Edgar Hoover. Well but also fingerprints still exist. I'll just point out it might it might have had a different shade, but I was at Standing Rock for six months on and off. Uh, there was FBI and Department of Homeland Security infiltrating the Standing Rock movement, too, <laughs> and put it, putting in infiltrators and moles. So it might not be as prevalent as it was in the 70s, but it certainly has still some remnants of the U.S. Uh, government, uh, FBI, DHS, U.S. Marshals. Uh, they were working to infiltrate uh, the protest movement at Standing Rock. Let me just give my audience so they could see. Uh, right now, the change.org petition has over 40,000 signatures to free Leonard Peltier. Um, you also have leaders of the National Caucus of Native American state legislature, legislators who wrote to President Biden on Monday urging him mm -hmm. to release Leonard Peltier. Uh, they said, Mr. President, do what is right. Uh, you have uh, Senator Brian Schatz uh, of Hawaii. He's the chair of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee on Wednesday of last week, urged uh, the president to commute. Mm -hmm. uh, Peltier's prison sentence. He said, quote, I commend your administration's commitment to righting past wrongs in our criminal justice system and continuing that work as you consider recommendations for individuals to receive clemency. I write to urge you to grant a commutation of Leonard Pel Peltier's sentence. And uh, in October of last year, you had uh, Congressman Raul Griava, as well as mm -hmm. 10 other House Democrats, uh, urged the president and Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, to expedite Peltier's release. So you really have a groundswell now, uh, you know, whether it be that he has COVID uh, as the latest, uh, you know, um, kind of right. precipitator. But could you kind of talk about the momentum now to free him? Yeah. You know, the, the name you didn't mention uh, was Patrick Leahy. Yeah, the longest serving U.S. senator came out yeah. in support of clemency for Leonard Peltier. Um, and, it's, and it's funny, it had nothing to do with uh, uh, any effort of ours beyond getting the word out, but um, Danny DeVito started tweeting yesterday. And uh, last time I looked, he had like 50,000 likes to this tweet of, you know, it's time, Mr. President, to free Leonard Peltier. I think a couple of things are coming together here that 
the Native American voice that had been ignored for centuries and not just ignored, but but actively stamped down um, has come to the come to the surface and come to the mainstream. People are starting to recognize the the you know the the mis mistreatment by the government of the Native Americans that were here, and this is something that now um, has is is being viewed in the mainstream. We're starting to see in the mainstream um, by mainstream American uh, the the problems with the Indian boarding schools and what happened there. We have a Secretary of the Interior for the first time Indigenous person uh, as Secretary of the Interior. <clears throat> All of those things are coming together at this time and raising awareness again to Leonard, who is not just this one guy who was railroaded in 1977, uh, in a 1977 trial. He's really the face of what's wrong and what's been wrong with this relationship between the United States government and the native uh, community that was here. Right. And James Reynolds' letter recognizes some of that. All of those things are coming together. The time is now to do that. And you put on top of that Leonard's age and poor health and COVID running through the system, the urgency has has also percolated to the surface. It's, it's time to end this. Right. And I, I would also point out, um, I mean, you have the, you have the, the prosecutor, May, uh, was a part of going after him, saying we had no evidence. You have all of this new revelations that have come out over the last few decades showing coercion, intimidation, intimidation, mm -hmm. constitutional violations. Uh, in my view, Leonard Peltier is not only entitled to uh, clemency and to be freed, but restitution for, for losing 46 years of his life. Uh, your thoughts? Right. Well, you know, let's get him out. And <laughs> And see what the other options are. The most important thing for me right now, and that it, it, it's really uh, the first time that I've, re I've really thought about that. Um, the important thing right now is let's get Leonard home. He's got children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, um, and the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa are ready to embrace him and take care of him as an elder. Let, let's do that. Let's get that done. And Mr. President has the absolute ability and authority under the Constitution to sign that paper and end this today. And let's move on. With the current groundswell, I listed off uh, all of the uh, Congress folks, as well as just activists mm -hmm. that have been fighting for this for years, including Native Americans, first and foremost. Uh, right. Are you seeing are you seeing any response or tea leaves from the Biden administration that they're even listening uh, to these calls? You know, I think they I think they're listening. I don't know. You know, I don't know what they're saying uh, in response to what they're hearing, but they are hearing about it. And someone asked about it in a press conference last week, and it comes up from time to time in in the White House press corps. Um, and it's being talked about internationally. The Amnesty International is on this. The U.N. has taken another look at it. Um, so it's impossible for them to ignore it. Uh, what they're saying in there, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful that they're saying the same things that we heard on the campaign trail, which is this is going to be a different world. This is going to be a different um, criminal justice system. This is going to be a, a compassionate administration. 
And so I'm hopeful that's what they're talking about and talking about a timeline for getting Leonard home. Right. Uh, thank you, uh, former judge Kevin Sharp, uh, who's now representing Leonard Peltier. I hope you get word <laughs> today uh, on, you know, if he's getting any better, getting any worse. Uh, you know, that's part of the problem. People don't realize when you're dealing with prisoners, uh, there's seems to be it's a not. significant delay in learning right. uh, details of their health. Yeah, uh, right. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time and for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me talk about these really important issues, not just to Leonard, but to the to the nation. It's important. Hey there, Jordan Sheridan uh, with Lee Camp of Redacted Tonight. Uh, he's also with RadIndieMedia.com, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, I wanted to start off, Lee. There's much to discuss, but I don't know. I generally have CNN, MSNBC on mute these days. Uh, but you could see over the last two weeks, uh, the captions, the, you know, the hysterical on the brink, uh, World War Three, yeah. uh, just insanity, uh, basically just, you know, it, it was basically hey, five minutes from now, World War Three is coming uh, in regards to Russia invading Ukraine. But uh, today it's like kind of oopsie. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. Hmm. Uh, the White House backs away from calling Russian Ukraine invasion imminent. Yeah. Um, White House is backing away from its characterization that Russia's invasion into Ukraine is imminent, saying officials, quote, still don't know if Russian President Vladimir Putin has made a decision on incursion. So that's a new one, considering <laughs> uh, for the last few weeks, all you've heard is it's imminent. And we need to, you know, possibly, uh, you know, send uh, five to 10,000 troops there. And even though they're backing away at the same time, Biden is now sending 3000 troops to Germany, um, Poland and Romania um, under the guise of strengthening NATO. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, this is a very hot and cold war game uh, we've been playing here? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to know really where to begin uh, on how pathetic this is, how incorrect, how the, the propaganda that's being pumped out of our mainstream media. Uh, I think they were one of the main reasons they were forced to back off that statement was because President Zelensky in Ukraine uh, just a couple of days ago said that Russia is not about to invade and that, yeah, there are Russian troops in Russia on the Ukrainian border. But that's been that way for years now. And he's saying there is no invasion imminent. And he said that kind of against, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a pro-U.S. or U.S.-backed government in many ways. But he still said, yeah, you need to chill out on the propaganda. Uh, so I don't know. This, this uh, President Zelensky seems to be OK. Maybe it's because he was a comedian before he was uh, elected president just a couple of years ago. So, you know, he's he's, he's doing co comedians proud across the world. But. Uh, that it, it, there's so many other factors going on here. There's the fact that the U.S. created a coup, helped create a coup in the Ukraine in 2014, 2015, uh, you know, working with Nazi forces. You can even read this at Yahoo News. This is not hi uh, hidden, really, is that the CIA has helped fund and arm these Nazi battalions, the Azov Battalion and others. Uh, and so we're working with neo-Nazis in Ukraine uh, to put them on the border with Russia uh, basically playing a horrific game of let's see if we can cause a nuclear holocaust. And 
our mainstream media is just, you know, rah, 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 let's go to war. Uh, you know, we have been, had most of our troops out of Afghanistan for what, a few months now. So I guess it is time to get involved in another full scale war. It's been a few months. And then you go <laughs> even deeper. And really this, a lot of this comes down to oil. Uh, it comes down to the fact that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Germany, between Russia and Germany, is uh, you know has been completed, and the U.S. wants to do everything to try and stop it because the U.S. Uh, sees dollar signs in, get, in continuing to uh, supply uh, gas to Europe, and so and we also want to stop Russia from having pipelines where they could make money by exporting gas and oil. So it 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 on multiple levels, it's very clear that this has nothing to do with oh my God, Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And then, of course, there's a discussion of NATO. NATO, you know, Russia had a promise that NATO wouldn't go beyond a certain point uh, years ago after World War II. And yet the U.S. is slowly collecting NATO countries surrounding Russia. NATO is not a peaceful force. People need to understand that. We seem to think in America, because we fall for the propaganda, that anytime you uh, tack the word NATO on a war, it's a just war or a good war. But the NATO, you know, uh, 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 destruction of Libya, U.S. created, but with NATO, didn't make it any less harmful, any less disgusting, any less of a war crime. Uh, you know, tacking the word NATO on wars doesn't make it right. It, it's like the it's like the Christmas wreath on the pedophile's home. Uh, it's just there to make you think everything's nice inside, but it's not. You know. Well, what's interesting to me, and you know, for you know. Disclaimer, I'm not working for Russia. I'm not a Putin apologist. You know, I'm not a member of the Kremlin. But you, you kind of reference the history here. Uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s, um, we, I mean, there was an explicit promise that uh, the U.S. and NATO would not further move east towards Russia. But, I mean, Russia's basically had missiles pointed towards it, uh, like near its borders, for forever. And we all know what happened when we had Cuban missiles, well, actually Russian missiles, uh, fired at us uh, in Cuba uh, under JFK and the whole not, Cuban not missile. Fi not fired, but placed in Cuba. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, with the whole Cuban missile crisis. So, you know, the media, and I'm not defending Putin. He's certainly uh, a sociopath in his own way and has done terrible things uh, to journalists and, and, and others. Uh, but this, this idea that like Russia and Putin is the unique uh, threat here, whereas we've basically been knocking on their doorstep for the last several decades, breaching explicit promises not to. I mean, I think most countries would find that threatening if the global superpower and imperialist power, the United States, was using these other countries uh, at, basically as proxy to further, further threaten Russia. Yeah. And I mean, you watch this mainstream media and you would think that Russia is encroaching on all these countries and shit like that. But, you know, people just need to look at the numbers. How many military bases does America have around the world? 900, maybe a thousand if you count black sites. Uh, how many military bases does Russia have outside of Russia? It's roughly 18. And most of those are in the former Soviet bloc countries. So it's 18 compared to 900 and China has won outside of China. So the U.S. has decided to be a global military empire and then accuse everyone else of encroaching on other countries, which is laughable. It's, it's the, the classic propaganda technique of accusing other countries of the thing you're doing. Uh, and then you just look at the global deaths caused by U.S. military. 
the the latest numbers on how many the war on terror has killed is 1 million directly. But if you account things like those who have died from infrastructure destruction, et cetera, we're talking 6 million people killed by our war on terror since 2001. And Russia has bombed how many countries? Russia has killed how many since 2001? Uh, I believe it's essentially zero. So it, it's hilarious to watch all of the mainstream media garbage and I mean, just knowing even the slightest bit about history, and I just mean recent history, you know that what our mainstream media is pushing is is laughable. And by the way, Lockheed Martin, I think it was, uh, recently came out. I think I don't know if it was their president or somebody that quoted this this friction, this tension, this buildup. They they're expecting significant boost in revenue because of possible war between yeah. Russia and Ukraine. There, yeah, there should not be a profit motive in killing and death and destruction, but we have a system that is largely based on trying to profit from death and destruction. Uh, it's, it's so immoral, so unethical, so disgusting. And you, you, you know, they, they, they point to those of us who want to uh, make these truths evident and tell people about them as the ones who are, need to be sidelined, need to be pushed out of mainstream media. Uh, because we want peace and we don't want this death and destruction. But, you know, years ago, there was a time when war profiteering was considered wrong. And now it's considered our standard operating procedure. It's it's how Wall Street works. I mean, Trump was a disaster. But you look at the few moments where he tried to create peace for his own ego and other garbage reasons. But you look at him trying to create a peace deal in North Korea and the stocks of the weapons contractors collapsed that day that he announced there'd be peace with North Korea. And sure enough, that creates a lot of force. That creates a whole lot of little people that get involved to make sure that doesn't happen and those stocks go back up. And sure enough, he was stopped from creating peace with North Korea. Like I said, racist, disgusting, horrible, pathetic human being. But in these small moments where he went against the, uh, the, the, the military industrial complex, you, you learn a lot about the system. Right. And uh, just so the audience knows, uh, this is from In These Times. Uh, Top weapons companies boast Ukraine-Russia tensions are a boon for business. Raytheon and Lockheed Martin boasted that the worsening conflict is helping profits. uh, And they're openly telling their investors uh, that tensions between the countries are good for business. And General Dynamics, meanwhile, is boasting about the past returns the company has seen as a result of such disputes. My last question on this, Lee. You know, it's interesting to me because the media, I don't know, like anything with Russia in particular is wall to war coverage. They don't seem to have the same zeal that we're still kind of committing this genocide on the Yemenis people that we're continuing <laughs> to fuel Saudi Arabia to commit heinous, you know, humanitarian and war crimes on Yemen, not to mention all the other countries we're the, bombing. The number of deaths in Afghanistan from our economic war is going to surpass far surpass the number of deaths from our bombing uh we have this aggressive disgusting economic war in afghanistan right now you know and you're right about yemen as well uh but and it's just like we're acting like the war is over and we're done talking about it meanwhile we are making sure people starve in afghanistan as we speak to achieve what what does that do for us what does that do for anyone who do you think starves when we put these sanctions on, do you think it's the, the rich in Afghanistan? Do you think it's the ruling Taliban officials that starve when you put sanctions that crush people? No, it's the poor, it's the elderly, it's the babies, 
Like literally, we are we have a policy choice that is killing babies in places like Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, via our economic sanctions. Tens of thousands have died in Venezuela because of our medical sanctions, our economic war on them. Uh, and and that this is by design. This is we know it's happening. It's not a mistake. We know it's happening. We know it's how these sanctions work, and we do it anyway. Uh, so it is the most immoral human rights abuse campaign you could imagine. And uh, I want to pivot uh, to uh, you on Redacted Tonight. Everybody check out Redacted Tonight on YouTube, on RT America. Um, you just did kind of the top censored stories in uh, 2021, I believe it was. And uh, the top censored story apparently was there is a new leading, uh, a, a new leading uh, death. <laughs> uh, what's driving deaths, the new leader, apparently for senior citizens, uh, you would think COVID would be really high up there, but there's something else that's now uh, one of the leaders in terms of fatalities for senior citizens. Yeah, these. so I went over the stories from Project Censored. Everyone should check them out if you get a chance. Uh, they do both a book and a website. But they come up with the top 25 most censored stories of the past year, each and every year. And this, you know, I only had time to go through some of them on Redacted tonight. But one of the top ones is that prescription non-adherence, medical non-adherence uh, by elderly, by our, our you know, the, the elder folks in America, senior citizens, will become the number one cause of death, surpassing all of the others uh, that are so common in the next 10 years. Because, and, and this, is, this is kind of something people probably know in the back of their mind, but they've never heard it said like this, and it gets no coverage, that you have millions of Americans, senior citizens, that choose not to take the medications they're told to, the medications that have been recommended by doctors or hospitals, or they choose not to even go and get their problems analyzed because they can't afford that either. And they do it because it would just cost too much and they're not going to pay that money. You know, maybe they even had the visit with the doctor. The doctor said, this is what you need to take and they don't have insurance and they look into how they could pay for it, how they could get it. And they go, well, that's, I could never pay for that. I could never afford that. I don't want to saddle my kids with debt or whatever the reason is. It comes down to money and literally the number one killer could soon be, uh, you know, uh, uh, affordability, non-adherence, to prescription drugs. It shows how backwards the United States is, how we're willing to kill our grandparents over this pathetic, disgusting, dumpster fire healthcare system. We are willing to watch them die so that we can continue a for-profit healthcare system that is like one-sixth or one-seventh of our economy that enriches a tiny number of people while all of us pay so that they can get wealthier. It's It's... Totally. I mean, it's unbelievable to even think about. But the fact that people are willing to, to watch millions of Americans, their own parents and grandparents die to defend this system is is laughable. But, yeah, that that will soon be the number one killer of senior citizens. And by the way, just, you know, kind of fitting, but uh, <laughs> drug drug makers raise prices by six point six percent on average this year. We're only in February. So uh, the companies kept most increases in the single digits. Why, thank you for another year as Congress explores measures to curb high costs. You know, I've been hearing this Congress exploring Explores. measures to, <laughs> to curb high costs. I believe the Democratic Party, uh, I don't know. I don't know how far back you go, but 2006 
you know, the Democrats took back Congress. Their whole thing was we got to lower prescription drug costs. It's kind of like this. This election is the most important election of our lifetime thing that goes on every four years. The Democrats have been calling for this. And this is like one of the things they campaign on for years. Not that the Republicans are much better, but literally there's a lot of talk about lowering prescription drug costs. Yet for some reason, it seems like we just never get there, Lee. Yeah, I heard they're going to have a study uh, to create a committee to develop a panel to look into passing a bill. Uh, so I'm pretty excited for that. That could happen any day now. No, it's, it shows the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. The Republicans are basically like, yeah, we don't give a shit about drug prices. So senior citizens, poor senior citizens die. Who cares? Uh, and the Democrats are like, oh, yeah, we care a lot. We're going to we're going to do something about that one day. We really care. And they don't at all. So those are the difference. You know, do you want to be do you want to be lied to your face or do you want to, uh, you know, just uh, accept that the politicians are saying, uh, fuck you, we don't care. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Democrats have done nothing on this front. They talk as if they will. And it, it, it's it's always they find some reason to get it. Oh, we just didn't. Well, we didn't have a, a big enough. Uh, you know, a big enough majority in the House and Senate. It wasn't quite enough. You know, when it came down to minimum wage, it was the parliamentarian, right? The parliamentarian stopped us. Some position no one's ever heard of before somehow managed to stop the Democrats from increasing the minimum wage. It's they always come up with some reason because these are this is one party and people have to eventually realize it in order to create any large scale change. This is one party. They degree slightly, very sorry, disagree very slightly on a couple of domestic issues. But in general, they agree on 80, 90 percent of the structural core issues of this country, entirely on foreign policy, entirely on endless surveillance, entirely on Wall Street, entirely on on environmental destruction. They basically agree on all of this and they make a big show of these tiny moments where they pretend to disagree. Uh, you know, they, they're like they'll disagree on whether we're going to have one more month of uh, uh, eviction moratorium. Not disagree on whether there should be housing for all. That would be outlandish. We'll just disagree on one more month of uh, eviction moratorium. It's it's that kind of ridiculous stuff that honestly should be a, a comedy show. And by the way, I mean, speaking of censored stories, I, I don't hear this discussed on CNN. I don't really see it much in the pages of the New York Times. Listen, I hate the rough, you know, not trying to poke the bees nests uh, of, uh, you know, COVID people, COVID, anti-vaxxers and that. We don't need to get into that. However, Moderna and Pfizer are killing half the world <laughs> by not or, or depriving half the world yeah. of vaccine equity by refusing to share their formula. The factories are ready in a lot of these countries, uh, particularly third world countries, and the, the manufacturing capacity is there. They don't have the formula. Ralph Nader and others have said in emergency times, the United States government can uh, overrule these pharmaceutical companies and basically seize the patent. But to me, that's one of the biggest scandals that Biden, uh, the U.S. government, Democratic Party, isn't forcing these pharmaceutical companies, which govern U.S. government uh, funding in large part help them even get these vaccines and these recipes. We're depriving the third world, which is in large part helping to uh, create and foster uh, new variants of COVID. 
Yeah, the, it's similar to the weapons contractors. Profit should not be a motive in this. But of course, profit is an immense motive in these situations. Those companies have minted uh, plenty more billionaires over the course of this pandemic. They are making billions of dollars uh, by administering these vaccines, which our tax dollars helped create because it was connected to the U.S. government. Uh, and so we help create them and then they enrich themselves and they hide the, the patent from other countries. Uh, you know, one that was that claimed at first when COVID began, they claimed they were going to have an open, open patent, open source was AstraZeneca. And then apparently Bill Gates uh, was pivotal in telling them to 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 withhold their patent and to uh, not give it away to other countries. Even to this day, I believe you have roughly 7% of Africa is vaccinated. And, you know, I'm of this crazy nuanced view where, yes, the vaccines have saved millions of lives. They probably saved my father's life. Uh, and, and so I'm of that view, yet I'm opposed to the mandates because uh, you, as one of the heads of the WHO said, I don't think it's the entire, the World Health Organization, it's not the World Health Organization position, but one of the heads said that mandates uh, when it comes to school, work and travel tend to come down to class issues and come down to socioeconomic background. And so you end up with places like Africa where 7% are vaccinated. They now can't travel to how many countries uh, because they, they, you know, this vaccine apartheid system we have. So you can be, you know, you can believe in science on one hand and also believe that uh, the, the way the mandates are set up now is very classist. It's a, it's a socioeconomic discrimination um, and it, it, it's completely wrong. And the government and our media have only themselves to blame. They have created a corrupt system. You and I have just talked about a lot of that corruption in that they are profit-based. Uh, they are profit-based when it comes to war, they're profit-based when it comes to health. And when you have that kind of corruption, guess what? People stop believing the shit you say. So if we know that they're going to go where the money takes them, then why should we believe them? And once you create a complete level of, of, of distrust in your nation, your community, your society, and then you go, oh my God, why are people saying they're not going to do what we say? Well, maybe because you are completely corrupt and you're just following dollar signs. Yeah, no, I think it's a fair a fair debate. Some things on COVID, I just think there's a lot of cranks out there pushing misinformation. But I do think certain things, I totally see, uh, you know, particularly on the mandates, why uh, there should be debate about that. Um, I wanted to lastly ask you, um, you know, I see kind of this old record spinning, you know, Obama, for example, after the global financial crash, uh, let bankers off, allowed millions to be foreclosed on. Uh, kept uh, us in Afghanistan, basically all the kind of I'm going to part the oceans and part the seas talk. Uh, reality was he was just, you know, the same old, same old status quo. Uh, he just yes, sounded- The Afghanistan surge. Yeah. Yes, the Afghanistan surge. Uh, but they really put, they tried to dress it up and put lipstick on a pig. Uh, he pointed out, oh, record job creation coming out of this recession. Um, you know, when he was running against Mitt Romney, this and that, they tried to kind of dress up the economy as recovering, even though people didn't feel it. He's lucky he was running on running against Gordon Gecko rein, reincarnated because he won. But obviously they lost in the Tea Party bloodbath in 2010. Uh, then Republicans, you know, took more power in 2014 and obviously 2016. I kind of see that same thing happening now. I don't want to, like, go too far into political predictions, but it's not looking good for Democrats in uh, November. But Chuck E. Cheese, Schumer 
was on the Senate floor uh, yesterday invoking Ronald Reagan and and saying Joe Biden's economy, uh, we're seeing uh, the the most rapid growth since Ronald Reagan. I don't know what growth they're talking about because <laughs> they're talking about GDP and these numbers that don't actually affect working people. But I wanted to ask you, it seems to me the Democrats are trying to put lipstick on a pig here and we're probably headed to a right wing a right wing surge. Yeah, when you stand for nothing different from the Republicans, then why should you be surprised when people don't uh, come running out to the polls for you? you? You have to stand for something different, and they don't. Their their only stance seems to be, didn't Trump suck? And it's like, yeah, he did, but you got to do more than that. You got to actually deliver on some things, which they, they have not at all. Uh, they've created the worst case scenario, which is basically doing nothing to deal with COVID in a, in a larger sense. And and not doing nothing to deal with the economic hardship that people face under COVID. You know, $2,000 checks or whatever, 1600 does not cut it. Uh, they, they could have created a system in which people are not struggling out there, in which people's lives are not destroyed. You had 60 million Americans waiting in food lines at food banks during this pandemic, and I'm sure many millions continue to uh, to this day. So you have people just incredibly incredible hardship out there people struggling so bad and they say oh well the stock market did well today well what is the stock market i mean these are these are massive companies that often their stock does well when workers are appropriately oppressed when they're as beaten down as possible when a uh, developing a union effort fails the stock goes up so if you see the stock going up it's not it doesn't mean people are doing well uh, that, that's like judging the health of a dying man by looking at the leeches on his skin and saying, those leeches look really happy. Okay, well, does that mean he's doing great? Uh, probably not. Uh, so, uh, the, yeah, the idea that the economy is wonderful is just laughable. And on, on top of that, you know, to dig a little deeper, which no one ever wants to get to this part of the story, uh, we live inside of a wage slavery system where many people are not doing what they love with their life. Uh, if you are wonderful great that's that's you are the exception that is wonderful but in most cases in this life people are not doing what they want they're not following their passion they're trying to survive by getting a job they generally hate or dislike something the latest polls show 80 percent of people at least somewhat dislike their job if not hate it so we live in a wage slavery system basically you're born and then you try and rent your life back by from corporations by working for them you try and rent some free time some life some vacation uh, it is a completely fucked system, and yet we're so indoctrinated into it that all we can think to ask for is please give us more jobs. Please give us better jobs uh, in terms of pay. Whereas there should at least be a discussion of also, could we get to a place where people are actually allowed to follow their pursuits that they want to, do what they want with their life, rather than just a place where they got a couple of dollars more for the job they fucking hate? Uh, so... You know, that discussion is never had, of course, on your mainstream media, but it's often not even had on your alternative media. Yeah. If we allowed that, Jeff Bezos wouldn't be able to spend five, whatever it was, five billion dollars, uh, dick rocket up to space. Exactly. Uh, we, we can't allow that uh, worker freedom because it would restrict uh, the billionaires and the plutocrats. Uh, thank you, Lee Camp. Redacted tonight uh, on RT. Uh, check out check out Redacted tonight on YouTube and let people know about rad indie media. 
Yeah, I've, I've created something. Uh, it's you know, it's it's not for profit. There's 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 no ads on it or anything. It's just designed to give people a place where they can go and find all this uh, great independent left wing content, uh, or at least independent, if even if the people don't consider themselves left wing all the time. Uh, and so that's called Rad Indie Media. Rad like radical. I n d i e media dot com. And uh, it, it updates all day long. It's got plenty of status quo stuff up there and uh, and everybody else that uh, people like. And it's also meant to try and uh, decrease some of the censorship so that if we get deleted from these platforms, I'm pretty close to being deleted from YouTube. Uh, Redacted Tonight's channel was demonetized recently. And so I'm sure they could delete the channel tomorrow. And the goal is that if you have another place people can find your stuff, that that won't be as impactful. Absolutely. Uh, RadIndieMedia.com. And uh, yeah, thank you for uh, hosting some status quo content there too. Thank you, uh, Lee Camp. We'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Jordan.